Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. HFMA recently released revised best practices for self-pay accounts receivable. Today on the podcast, our policy director, Chad Mulvaney, talks with members of the task force that developed these recommendations to understand how these changes will help both patients and providers. And if your organization is working on putting together all the information required in CMS's final rule on price transparency, you'll want to hear from our sponsor. Gregory Adams from Panacea is here to share some aspects of the rule many organizations might have missed. And speaking of CMS, Rich Daly interviews Representative Roger Marshall about his efforts to get CMS to speed up their overhaul of Stark and antitrust laws. That's coming up right now in Beyond the News. Hello, this is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Today on the Beyond the News segment, we'll interview Congressman Roger Marshall on his efforts to push for action on an expected Trumpishan overhaul of administrative rules implementing Stark and anti-kickback laws. By way of introducing our interview with the Congressman, Chad, could you tell us a little bit about why this overhaul is important? You know, Rich, when you ask members and you talk to providers about sort of barriers to adoption of, of alternative payment models, you know, everybody sort of focuses on some of the, the, the very technical and wonky issues with, with, with the models and sort of the shared savings piece of it or how you, how you arrive at savings and calculating benchmarks. But, you know, very quickly, the conversation will transition into issues around physician alignment and challenges posed by the current Stark and anti-kickback laws, which are really, you know, if you think about when these laws were developed, they were developed to sort of fight some of the, the unintended consequences of fee-for-service payment system. And obviously, if you're in a, in, in a value-based model where you're at risk, specifically in two-sided risk, those incentives start to, you know, if they ever existed, weaken and evaporate. And so really what this is starting to do is going to make it easier for physicians and hospitals and other entities to align together to improve the quality of care. And just before we sort of get into the interview, maybe as a quick anecdote, you know, it's not uncommon for me to hear from our members about how they spent months and months and months trying to negotiate an arrangement with a physician to join their clinically integrated network or to, to, to become part of a value-based arrangement. And finally, at the 11th hour, after all of this work has been done, to find that there's an attorney that thinks that something in the arrangement will not fly with the current Stark or anti-kickback statutes. And so all of that work is lost. and You've lost momentum and you've also potentially damaged the relationship with the physician. So I, I know the folks in the value-based space that are participating in alternative payment models are waiting with eager anticipation for, for the opportunities that these models will create to better align the incentives, both economically to, to, to lead to better care delivery. I see. So a big deal that we will also be keeping an eye on and, and watching for. Now let's get on to our interview with Representative Marshall. Congressman Roger Marshall, a Republican representing Kansas, a physician, and a U.S. Senate candidate, joins us today on the podcast to give us some insight on policy issues with major implications for healthcare finance. Thanks for joining us today, Congressman. Hi, I'm, I'm glad to join you. I look forward to a great conversation. So the first thing we wanted to ask you about was your efforts to lead communication with the Trump administration on finalizing regulations to modernize the Medicare anti-kickback statute and Stark physician self-referral law. We wanted to ask you about that effort and what you've heard from healthcare providers on this issue and if you have any sense uh, when such changes may, may come. Uh, listen, I hate to overpromise and underdeliver. I don't have a good 
sense of timing. You know, everything seems to be in, engulfed in this COVID issue right now. But it's certainly the, the concept of value-based healthcare is nothing new. And if you actually, I didn't even remember this, but the first Stark legislation goes back to what, 1988. I was an intern at Bayfront Medical Center and had no idea what all the to-do was about. But as I've made it through 27 years of private practice in medicine and, and helped uh, run a hospital, certainly I've seen the ins and outs of healthcare from different angles. And if there's one thing I know about doctors and people who run hospitals is we don't like any gray area. You know, I have a saying to my staff, if it's gray, stay away. And these outdated rules, I just don't think could have ever anticipated what, what has been going on in healthcare over the past 30 years since that concept was introduced. So it's high time we take a modern look at this, at the situation and for value-based care to go forward, we need to modernize those particular rules and uh, look forward to, to getting some type of answer from, from OMB and HHS in the very, very near future. Great. And uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was how you assess the, the federal COVID response that you were just mentioning and what further steps would you prioritize in this? Gosh, I just have a message of hope. I think we're making incredible progress. I was on the phone recently with Vice President Pence. As you all know, we have three vaccines in phase three. We're manufacturing those already. We think that we'll have vaccines available for those who are most vulnerable by Thanksgiving time and then probably by the new year for, for others. And I just don't think that we're going to get on top of this virus totally until we have a vaccine. I'm excited what we're doing for the most vulnerable population. Within the next couple of weeks, we're gonna have the point of care testing, the 15 minute test in every nursing home assisted uh, living facility in the country so that we can quickly figure out who does and doesn't have the virus. And then just thank goodness we have the greatest doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists in the world that we have decreased the mortality rate from this virus when it was the first came around the spring from 4% to 0.4%. So thank goodness for American innovation, the new antivirals that we're creating, the uh, using antibodies and, and we're using blood thinners and steroids, all sorts of things to lower that mortality. So, you know, I would just share that I feel like the administration gave us everything we needed. And to share a quick story, uh, in Southwest Kansas, we process over 25% of America's beef. And when we saw the start of an outbreak down there, when one of the doctors called me up and said, Roger, I've got 20, 30 patients here in my parking lot. I'm, I'm sure they're going to test positive. They all work at the packing plant. And I made phone calls to the presidential task force. And overnight, I had 6,000 tests. I had thousands of that point of care, 15-minute test. The communities came together to solve the problem, to test people. I was sitting in a volunteering time as a physician, working in an ICU in an emergency room on a Friday afternoon. We were running out of ventilators. I called the White House on a Friday afternoon. Sunday afternoon, two Black Hawk helicopters showed up with four ventilators. The next day, Saturday afternoon, I'm in the ICU. We're getting low on PPE. So I sent a, a text to the White House. Sunday afternoon, a personal message from the president. We'll be sending you more PPE tomorrow. So, so look, I think that we gave everything that, that we actually needed to keep America safe. I think the doctors and nurses have done an incredible job. And I'm very optimistic that, that going forward that we're taking care of the vulnerable, getting the vaccine ready. So America is solving this one community at a time. Just so proud of, of the healthcare, the greatest healthcare system in the world. 
All right. Wow, that's a pretty powerful image. The ventilators by Black Hawk helicopter. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It was. It was. It was incredible. And uh, I think it's just a. Just a, You know, they they found him at a at I think a VA hospital in Kansas City and got him down there to us. And and like I said, everybody that needed a ventilator got one. And just thank goodness the number of a number of people being admitted to the hospital are much less than it was. You know, six months ago, the percentage of people that get this virus don't seem to be getting as sick. Uh, so, so we're doing a, an incredible job and just want to keep saluting those doctors and nurses out there on the front line. Oh, wonderful. So we mentioned at the beginning that you're a Senate candidate for this, uh, this fall's election. So do you have any healthcare areas important to physicians or hospitals on which you plan to focus if you are elected to the Senate in November? Well, well look, I, I think the the number one challenge is, is taking care of pre-existing conditions, of course. And the, when I sat down with President Trump and had this discussion with him two years ago, since I was leading the legislation that would replace the ACA, the president said, the first thing, Roger, whatever you do is take care of pre-existing conditions. And then next, we talked about how do we provide quality health care at a truly a more affordable price. And, and the, the basic uh, pillars, if you will, of, of transparency, innovation, and consumerism. Consumerism means how do we make patients consumers again? So I think that we have to empower patients and value the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship and put them in control of their healthcare decisions, not more government control. We want less healthcare control. And as I look towards the future, you know, this value-based healthcare, which we started talking about, is so evident today why we need that, so that we remove that gray area and allow doctors and hospitals to innovate. Think about what's happened in our in my lifetime as, as a doctor. Uh, I did the first laparoscopic ectopic pregnancy in our uh, in our hospital in 1988 the first laparoscopic hysterectomy the next year um, and now what 90 percent of gallbladders and ectopics and uh, large amounts of, of hysterectomies done laparoscopically we're talking about outpatient surgeries for joints for knees and hips and the number of knee replacement hip replacements are going to double over the next decade so there needs to be some type of value-based health care uh, that allows us to keep innovating employers are demanding it by the way employees are demanding it medicare seems to set the stage for all this uh, so we're so i'm just excited that under this current administration that uh, hhs uh, Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan is doing a great job, very encouraged how he works with the Doc Caucus uh, in Congress. So I think there's there's great days ahead of us. Everybody keep innovating. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for the insights. On behalf of you know our listeners, I definitely want to thank you as a clinician for all of your efforts in that area specifically. But um, also, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today about all these complex and moving issues. You're, you're very welcome. I enjoyed the conversation. Everybody be safe and have a great day. Leverage the knowledge of industry experts to fast track your organization's success. With seven different topic-specific programs, HFMA's on-site education is designed to empower your staff to better manage costs, enhance efficiency, and integrate financial information with the delivery of healthcare. Learn more at hfma.org slash onsite. Hi, my name is Chad Mulvaney and I'm a policy director with HFMA. 
We just released our updated revised medical accounts receivable resolution best practices. And I thought this would be a, a great opportunity to bring together a couple of members of the task force who helped put this together with the intent of understanding how these changes will help patients and providers when it comes to patient responsibility balances. And it's really my pleasure to introduce Steve Beard, who is Chief Business Development Officer from State Collection Services, and State was kind enough to support the work of the task force. John Nykirk, who is Executive Director Revenue Cycle at Froder in the Medical College of Wisconsin. And Suzanne Listina, Executive Director Access and Revenue Integrity at the University of Chicago Medicine. Suzanne, maybe I'll start with you because just as a little bit of background, a number of years ago, you were one of my peers at HFMA when we actually did the initial uh, best practices. So what was the intent of the best practices and why did HFMA convene a task force back in 2014 to, to create the original draft document? There were a couple of what I would call very astute stakeholders who were paying attention to some discussion going on at the um, federal government level about imposing medical debt restrictions. And they approached HFMA and said, hey, you know, have you been hearing about this? This is going on and um, proposed that maybe rather than being reactive and waiting until, you know, new regulations were passed, that would it be possible for HFMA to convene a group of stakeholders and propose to the government some best practices that they might adopt then into their regulations. It was a really great group. I think it helped standardize a number of things that were, were, were both challenging from the provider perspective and also from the consumer perspective. It was great to get a cross-industry group of stakeholders together. So as the audience can probably hear, we had folks representing providers, we had folks representing business partners, and we also had a number of folks at the table also representing the consumer. So it's a very balanced approach. And with that thought in mind, John, we'd be interested in hearing from your perspective, what are some of the most significant updates to the best practices? I think one of the biggest changes or additions maybe to the best practices was, you know, we really started with a focus on the, on the front end, which, you know, wasn't necessarily as robust in the, in the initial best practices. One of the things we added to the framework was a price transparency element, obviously, Price transparency has come a long way since 2014, but certainly as the task force convened and, and had discussions, I think one of the elements that came out is certainly success, both from a you know patient and provider standpoint in medical uh, accounts receivable resolution is helping patients understand you know, prior to service, what they're going to owe, what options are available to them in terms of payment plans and financial assistance and, and various coverage options. So, uh, so that was one element that was added into the, into the framework, you know, also the medical accounts receivable resolution process, there were pre-service and discharge patient education and financial engagement uh, elements added. So I think that really that just kind of goes along with what HFMA has been publishing and producing and, and focusing on over the, the time since the initial best practices with price transparency and patient financial communications best practices and, um, you know, the adopter program for patient financial communications. Those elements are all woven in. And, and as we all know, certainly the, that, the success on the back end and, and making patients aware of and helping patients engage with us on the back end definitely does start uh, prior to service or, or at the time of discharge for those patients uh, that, that don't choose to come to see us, but are, but are brought in through emergency or other urgent methods. You know, as we talked, and Steve kind of touched on the, this in, in his comments, but there, there have been a lot of negative 
stories lately in the press about providers, collection practices, legal action that's taken. So, so as a task force, again, convened and, and talked through some of those topics, one of the things that, that we thought would be beneficial would be a checklist for, uh, here are some recommended steps that providers might take prior to initiating those ECAs or extraordinary collection actions, things like credit reporting, debt sale, legal action, hot topic, legal action, and focus of many of the you know, the stories in the press. So uh, a real handy tool, I think, that providers can easily go through and, and sort of make sure that they're checking all the boxes and, and considering all the different uh, uh, various scenarios prior to initiating any sort of extraordinary collection activity. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I liked about the checklist, one of our external reviewers came back and the feedback that they said about the checklist was, this is fantastic. This is something that we can build in as sort of our policy to make sure that we've ticked the boxes. Literally, they're going to use it like a checklist now before they allow an NECA to be used on a patient to the extent that their their board authorized policy allows it. You know, Suzanne, in thinking about this, how will these changes benefit consumers and patients? It can be really hard for patients to navigate their medical bills. I mean, particularly when we think that for most, in most circumstances, they're sick. This is not something they're necessarily preparing for. And many of these best practices, um, particularly the new ones that have been enhanced, really um, enable a more collaborative communication between the provider um, or their business partner and the patient. And I think what's important is it's in a consistent way throughout their medical service. So like John said, it's the resolution process, whether it's the beginning, the middle, or the end. And I think that what's really important is as as providers adopt that, your patients are going to feel like their financial needs or questions really can be addressed at any point in time of their medical service. And then touching on the communication perspective, I think the one best practice I would call out that I think is really important is the ability to offer a customized communication to fit the needs of the patient. We've primarily done phone, you know, we do email and we're, we're, we have a lot of patients now that really don't want to pick up the phone and talk to us, but financial communication is critical. And so having multiple ways of being able to contact the patient or better yet, as it's recommended to offer a customized way of being able to communicate with the patient, I think is really important. Steve, as you think about how these changes will benefit the patient, how do you think that will also translate into benefit for providers? Well, the quick answer is exactly what Suzanne said. Because, you know, at the end of the day, really the the challenges that a lot of providers face is, well, how do you do this? And who do you partner with from a business uh, relationship standpoint? All of that does impact patient satisfaction as well as the recoveries because, you know, unlike most forms of uh, oh, collections, once it becomes bad debt, uh, it really is all about the education. It's not like people say, I just don't feel like paying my bill today, therefore I'm not. It is, they don't really understand why it's their responsibility, so on and so forth. So as Suzanne mentioned, the communication that starts on the front end and works its way all the way through will definitely have an impact on what uh, the patient's feelings are, as well as from the facility standpoint, the uh, recoveries with those particular accounts. 
as we think about this and we're wrapping up the conversation, one of the things that I would encourage HFMA's members to do is to find the report on our website and it's available at hfma.org under industry initiatives, dollars and cents. And that's where the full report's available. So you can read the executive summary, get the checklist that, that John and I were talking about. And also, if you want to learn more, we're, we're doing a session with other members of the task force during HFMA's Digital Revenue Cycle Conference, and that session will be on Wednesday, September 30th. So just on behalf of HFMA, I want to thank John, Suzanne, and Steve for your time. I always enjoy chatting with you guys, always incredibly insightful. And I really, really do appreciate all of the good work that you guys did and the rest of the task force did to help update these best practices and standardize the process for the betterment of both patients, consumers, and the, the industry. How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward slash MapApp. Price transparency is coming, and if you haven't been getting ready, it's a good idea to start now. Compiling a list of standard prices for 300 shoppable services and making them public as required by CMS is a big enough task by itself, but according to my guest today, there are some gray areas to the regulation that many healthcare organizations might not have considered. Gregory Adams, Executive Vice President at Panacea Healthcare Solutions and a former National Chair of HFMA, talked with me recently about a few areas where hospitals should be cautious when preparing for the January 1st deadline. Frankly, the biggest challenge probably is meeting the January 1st, 2021 timeframe. Um, as you can appreciate, we only have four months left, and there's quite a bit of work that needs to be done to pull the required information together that can turn out to be very challenging. In fact, it's important to note there is more than meets the eye in terms of the day requirements. For example, NDC and implied quantity level information needs to be there, fee schedules, Plus, contract information for both employed physicians and non-physician practitioners has to be included, and I think that's an important point to make. Additionally, hospitals may not be aware that the shoppable list is likely to include MSDRG and same-day surgery procedures and not simply the items listed in your charge master. The CMS list of 70 includes DRGs, private outpatient tests, outpatient surgery items and services. So as you can see, there's a a fair amount of, of information that needs to be provided by January 1st. This task, as you described it, certainly sounds gigantic, but it also sounds pretty clear. But I know there are some gray areas, some nuances in this final rule. Can you dig into that a little bit and, and describe one or two of those gray areas? Sure. In fact, I think you're very right about that. Even though the regulation is very detailed, there are many gray areas where the requirements as written may, in fact, not seem logical. And I'll give you an example of that. So if you take a look, for example, in the consumer display or patient estimation system, hospitals must include MS-DRG-470, right? That's a hip and knee replacement procedure 
that's included in CMS's list of 70 shoppable items. And they must show not only the negotiated charge, but the de-identified lowest and highest negotiated charge. So we believe it would certainly be misleading to calculate and only show a consumer a minimum or maximum for those payers that pay specifically based on MSD or G. When the rule requires that the shoppable item in DRG has to show the negotiated rate for all payers. So although it's not specifically required in the final rule, but in the interest of providing the consumer with the most meaningful information and ensure that the display de-identified low and high negotiated charger rate are comparable and inclusive mathematically for all payers, our company will regroup all inpatient records into an MSDRJ. We'll then calculate and display the negotiating reimbursement regardless of the payment method for each pair. And what I mean by this is you have a variety of payers that may pay based on any MSDRG. You have other payers that may pay on a per diem. Some have a percentage of charge reimbursement. And so we believe that you really have to aggregate those so that it's comparable across the board for all payers that the hospital information is being provided. There are a lot of pieces here that need to come together. And I imagine pretty easy to miss a few points. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some aspects of the final rule that haven't gotten much attention or have maybe been a little too easy to overlook as people were starting to scramble to get this done. So as you mentioned, the details, there's a lot of details in there, but some of the things that hospitals may miss when I look at it is that this rule applies to all hospitals. So it's not only those hospitals that participate in Medicare. It applies to critical access hospitals, inpatient psychiatric facilities, LTACs, Salt Community Hospitals, inpatient rehab facilities, children's hospitals, and others. So it's, it's really inclusive. Again, I think that's an important point that can often get missed. The rule does not require federal payers, such as Medicare and Medicaid, be included. However, if a hospital does have contracts with third-party payers, who provide insurance to the Medicare patients, as I mentioned before, such as Medicare Advantage plans, then these negotiated rates must also be included in, in the price transparency regulation. I wanted to ask you one more thing before we close out. As listeners might know, at our digital annual conference on August 12th, our president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, interviewed CMS Administrator Seema Verma. And we released that interview as a podcast episode shortly afterward. So if anyone listening would like to hear that conversation, it's available on our website. So Administrator Verma talks about price transparency tools empowering the patient. And so, Greg, I'm curious what your thoughts are here on what are the opportunities and what are the responsibilities that healthcare organizations have in communicating with their patients about these tools and their financial responsibility? I think that's a great question, and I think it really summarizes the whole thought process behind the price transparency legislation. So sort of my thoughts and comments uh, are I've always thought, and, and I'm pretty sure this is consistent with HFMA's position, is that consumers should be able to shop around in advance of a routine test or elective procedure as they would for any other non-healthcare services. Many hospitals without the CMS sponsor will have, have already implemented some patient estimation systems that they utilize in, in-house already to provide patient estimates. This rule takes it a step further by requiring an online tool for the consumer 
which quite frankly makes sense in this current day and time where patient engagement systems are becoming more widely implemented and consumers everywhere have become proficient on navigating the internet on their phones as well as their personal computers. I mean, nowadays, even the seniors are are using personal computers, tablets, phones to search for different things, to, to look at different service pricing and the like. At Panacea, we believe providers that embrace the technology, in fact, as many other industries have done for years now, will likely see opportunities to increase their market share and patient satisfaction scores and improve on a more real-time basis their communications with their patients and community. This segment was sponsored by Panacea. Panacea, a Bessler company, helps healthcare organizations improve their coding, compliance, and data integrity with frontline expertise in mid-revenue cycle management. Designed for healthcare professionals responsible for financial performance or compliance, Panacea delivers advanced auditing, compliance, charge master, strategic pricing, and revenue integrity consulting and technology solutions to help their clients proactively identify risks and opportunities and overcome today's challenges, providing the clear answers needed to swiftly and cost-effectively achieve quality results. More information is available at panaceainc.com. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Thank you so much to our sponsor this week, Panacea. And for you listeners who are getting ready for that January 1st deadline on price transparency, visit HFMA's community to share your strategies or ask questions about what your fellow members are doing. And if you'd like to talk to our team directly, please reach out at podcast at hfma.org. Number nine, number nine.